Thank you for being here. The, uh, it was a busy week, and so there's a few things I, I want to share with you. Uh, most, uh, mo not, most notably was the passing of a very important figure in Jewish life, and uh, I, I hope that I will do his memory justice by framing it with a particular idea. And the idea that I wanted to build out for you this morning is the idea that frames the Torah portion for this morning. The story that the Torah presents to us this morning is the continuing history of Avraham Avinu, of Abraham. And in the story of Abraham that we encountered last week was him picking up from his roots and leaving his home. Exactly where that home was, we're not entirely sure. We know that his family did emerge from a place called Padanaram. Padanaram is in ancient Mesopotamia. Where he went from there, we're not entirely sure exactly. It tells us that he picked up and went with his family to a place called Haran. What Haran exactly is, again, we don't know. There are two potential answers to that. And we're not entirely sure, did he go there as the first part of this journey, or did he go there because his parents and family left, and then he picks up from Haran, and he heads to what we now know is the land of Israel. This morning, what in fact we discover is the end of Abraham's history. It's coming to a close. His beloved wife, Sarah, passes away. The Torah portion is known as Chaye Sarah. And the first part of the Torah portion deals with, on substance, what appears to be a rather irrelevant discussion. We know that Abraham needs to find a place to bury his wife. The person who owns the area where he was living in northern Israel outside of Shechem offers to give him a burial plot for both him and his wife. Abraham is appreciative of the gesture, but he insists that he pays for it. The man then replies to him and says, What is exactly this money between us? In other words, what is he saying? I don't need the money. You have plenty of money. Just take the land. And Abraham refuses, of course, and he insists on paying for it. By tradition, both of Jewish and Islamic tradition, and certainly of Christian tradition as well, which is to say that it is a near universal tradition, that that achuzat kever, that's called in the Torah, this burial plot, is known as Ma'arat HaMachpelah, the cave of the patriarchs in the city, the modern city of Hebron, of Hebron. But that's not the only story that we read. After Sarah passes away, Abraham then feels that he is charged in order to ensure that his son Yitzchak Isaac has a wife. Abraham then sends his trusted lieutenant. His name is Eliezer. And he sends him off to find a suitable wife for his son. Where does he go? He goes back to the old country. He plucks him from where Mesopotamia is. And, of course, he finds the person. Her name is Rivka, Rebecca, and the story thereafter is, I think, known to us, at least in the broadest of strokes. Okay, so that's the outline of this morning. What's the idea? What connection does the story of Abraham buying a burial plot for his wife and that of Abraham going to ensure that his son finds a wife and by extension that his son can provide to him, which is the ultimate wish of every Jewish parent. You want grandchildren. 
<laughs> That's what everyone wants. But the fact of the matter is, I believe that there is a beautiful arc, connective arc, between these two stories. And that's why in ancient Jewish tradition, when they began cutting the Torah up, the pizza pie of the Torah into sections, they specifically linked these two stories together. It was not an accident. It was not coincidental. It was incidental. It was determined to be that way. So what's the connection between them? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory offers an insight into the answer. And it is like so much of what Rabbi Sachs wrote was a brilliant insight into the simplicity of things. Much of rabbinic commentary on the Torah it vacillates between these two ideas. One idea is that it does these leaps and jumps of things that are highly complicated. It tries to tease and twist the most extreme and sublime understandings of what the text is trying to tell us. And Jewish rabbinic tradition is filled mightily and deeply with these kinds of interpretations. Bear in mind that the entire mystical tradition of Judaism is taking a letter or a word or a sentence and flipping it over 50 times in order to find something subtle and obscure that hadn't been seen before. One only needs to look at the Haggadah, the Passover Haggadah, to realize as you begin to read through the rabbinic dialogue of the story of our exodus from Egypt, when they begin to take two or three or four Hebrew words and then they have these remarkable expositions on them that go on for paragraphs and paragraphs. The 63 volumes of the Talmud takes but words and they build mountains out of them. But in opposition to that, there's another rabbinic tradition. The rabbinic tradition that looks at every word and says, I'm not going to turn this word five or 10 or 15 ways in the sun to see what kind of light I can capture. The other rabbinic tradition says, I'm going to hold this world word in the palm of my hand, and I'm going to search for the simplicity of what the word is saying and find my lesson there. Rabbi Sachs was a master of that. He didn't look for the complicated, convoluted answers in the text. He opened the text up, and when you read his words, you discover that he holds the verses and ideas in front of you and says, this is another way of looking at it simply. Rabbi Saxon asking and addressing the question that I posed to you this morning, what exactly is the connection between Abraham buying a burial plot for his wife and then Abraham directing Eliezer, his lieutenant, to go and find a wife for his son? Rabbi Sachs says that this is what great leaders do. Great leaders build success with small steps. Great leaders build success by building and creating the conditions for God's plans to come to be. Let me explain what that means. At the very beginning of Abraham's story, 
he is told that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and you will inherit a land. In order for us to have those children, Abraham has to go and find a wife for his son. God is not going to deliver a wife to Isaac. Abraham realizes that he has to go and find the wife for his son. When God promises that there'll be a land, Abraham realizes that the land isn't going to be given to him. He has to buy it. Later on in the story of the Israelites, they realize that even though by through Moses and by through Joshua that they are told that there is a land waiting for them, they must battle for it. When God tells Noah that he will be saved, Noah has to build the ark. God doesn't deliver one for him. Which when you think about it is one of the great Jewish ideas to come into the world. And that is when the conditions of the world are what they are and we expect something better or we believe that something better and richer will come our way. That we don't stand and wait for God to make those conditions. God's charge to us is to create conditions for the blessings to come. There's an old, interesting rabbinic story that goes like this. It says that there are only three things, there are only three things that are in your hands. Everything else is in the hands of God. Meaning there are only three things that you are charged to be responsible for. There are only three things that you must do. Everything else, the story says, you can leave to God. And what are those three things? They are fear of heaven, earning a living, and finding a spouse. Which is to say that if you want to be a godly, kind, and good person, you have to work at it. Which is to say that if you want to make a living in order to support yourself and your family, you got to make that happen. And if you want to find love in this world, you got to go out and find it. To which the next question is, if you have to make a living by yourself, because God won't give it to you, and if you have to, create your sincerity and piety in your own because God won't give it to you. And if you want love, you got to go look for it because God won't give it to you. What else is there in life? <laughs> Which actually is true. There's nothing else in life. The story illustrates for us both the beautiful idea to be woven from the Torah, amplified beautifully by the words of the late Rabbi Sachs, that great leaders, which you are, which we all are, build great things in our lives by taking small steps. It is a beautiful lesson from the words of Rabbi Sachs as to how we should live our lives every day. Great things through small steps. I have one last idea I want to share with you. I am not a consumer, a large consumer of popular culture. My wife often points out to me because we share the same Amazon Kindle account. When she looks at my books and her books, she goes, oy vey, <laughs> we really live in two different worlds. But I have to tell you, I did catch something from popular culture uh, last week. It was a monologue, a comedy monologue by the American comedian David Chappelle. And it was on Saturday Night Live. And it was a brief 16-minute monologue. The real essence of what he was trying to say boils down in the last two minutes. After Shabbat, if you have a chance, you should definitely log on to take a look at it. But I want to share it with you through my words. And you can catch his own if you wish. 
The last time David Chappelle appeared on Saturday Night Live was four years ago, after Hillary, Hillary Clinton had lost the election and Donald Trump had won it. And he said that the last time I was here on the stage, he said, I was heartbroken as you were. And he says, but the other half of the country was celebrating. He goes, now we're happy and the other half of the country is not celebrating. Which he said is a reminder to us that whatever we think is over, it's not over. He reminds us poignantly to be humble in victory. To remind yourself that even though the person that you wanted to win won, there are people who feel profoundly disappointed and sad that their candidate didn't win. But the salient point of what he was trying to say drills deeper. He said that for the first time in the history of the United States, the life expectancy of white Americans is going down. And this is because of record rates of poverty and suicide and drug addiction and depression, which is to say that these people have legitimate problems. And he goes on to tell us that if all of these conditions are making you feel as if nobody cares in your life, that you're angry because you feel left behind and ignored. David Chappelle said that as a black man living in the United States, he says, trust me, I understand. And he said, if you're a police officer or some other law enforcement agent who gets up in the morning and puts your uniform on and puts your badge on and feels that there's a target on your back and that people don't appreciate and disregard the sacrifice that you're prepared to make to lay down your life to protect other people, that if you feel a target for that, David Chappelle said that as a black man living in the United States, trust me, I understand that. But he said the difference between me and them is that they start hating each other. And he said, but me, I don't hate anybody. I just hate that feeling. goes on to say that people have to start learning to forgive each other and find meaning in their life with what they have, not with what they wish they had. He says that if the one enduring lesson of the suffering of black Americans can teach white Americans is learning how to move past hating each other to accepting the things and moving to something better. So if you have a chance, you should watch it. It's beautiful words. Shabbat shalom.